Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have with me Jacob Daniel Winograd, who is the podcast host of Daniel 3 Anarchy. I think I got that name right, right? Did I get that right? Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy. It's close. (laughs) Biblical Anarchy. That's really important that we specify that. Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, we just had like an hour-long conversation on your podcast, which was live and which was fun because I got to see like people comment as we talked about it. So obviously, I'm going to encourage people. Yeah, Aaron (laughs) trolling us. That's right. Exactly what was happening. Of course, I want people to listen to me as much as possible. So go over and listen to me on his podcast and then, you know, come back here and listen to the rest of the unlistened episodes on this feed. No, actually, your podcast is good. I really enjoyed being on and, uh, and I recommend it. So you... Actually, I've listened to an interview that you did, and you, I guess, I want to say the word recently. Recently is relative, I suppose. I guess for me, I've been a libertarian for you know almost 20 years, and you haven't been a libertarian as quite as long. And so I was really interested in your story because you became a libertarian, and you're like, you're like a really, really good, I guess you're an anarcho-libertarian or whatever. It's like, you're really solid, man. And for like There's only a few There's another type of libertarian years, to be? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so tell a little bit about your story. Like, did you come from the left, the right? Did you like just, yeah, you weren't born a libertarian because I just, you know, gave that away. But anyway. Well, sometimes I feel like I was just a libertarian who was born in the wrong body. You know what I mean? But okay. <laughs> so you transitioned. Right. And now you feel at peace with who you are. <laughs> well, in a way, like I said it as a joke, but also like it's somewhat weird. And I think it's, typical for people to do this where you kind of look back to your past self through a lens of like your current beliefs and your current state of maturity and development. And so I sometimes forget how recent, maybe in the grand scheme of my life that I became a libertarian or just how short a time span it is compared to those who have been around longer. But yeah, so I I became a libertarian in 2018. And that was after a pretty much most of my, you know, from adolescence into, you know, a good chunk of my adult life, I had been on the political left. I was raised in a conservative household and just for various reasons kind of didn't really agree with the the beliefs that my, my parents had and that my church had. And I think it was informed a lot by things that my friends believed and things that I was kind of taught in public school, which, you know, probably not that surprising, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, all things considered. But I, I had a, you know, maybe a couple unorthodox beliefs for uh, someone from the left. I was always pro-life or at least, you know, it was anti-abortion. So I was always a little bit of a zebra among horses there. And I wouldn't say that I ever fell super hard into a, I don't know, like full-blown socialist mindset, but I definitely had a skepticism of the free market. And I think I had a, I think I had a view, I was kind of like a, like a center left person who thought that, you know, laissez-faire capitalism failed in the late 1800s and early 1900s and brought us the Great Depression and Grapes of Wrath and, you know, all the typical stuff you learn in school. And I also had a bit of a social justice bend to me back when social justice was a bit more moderate than the way that the progressive 
woke left Before, has gone today. Yeah, it was social yeah. justice seems at, at this stage seems pretty yeah, moderate is the right word before it went woke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and and honestly, what really started my transition, so to speak, was the election of Donald Trump. I want to be clear, I don't support Trump. I'm not defending him. I could bring up many things with Donald Trump that I disagree. But all caveats aside, I bought into all the fear-mongering from the left about Donald Trump, most of which turned out to be untrue. On top of that, I also noticed that with Donald Trump in office, the left was becoming more increasingly radical. And, you know, we saw the rise of anti-racism, we saw the rise of Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. and just, just all these different things. And I suddenly, you know, I actually started to watch Dave Rubin because he kind of went through a very similar journey I did. So I kind of identified closely with him. And so for a while, I kind of just was like, oh, I'm a disinfected lefty who I'm starting to, you know, get along more with some center right in conservative people. Started listening to people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and, you know, starting to hear some worldviews I hadn't considered before. And then I just happened, you know, through the Dave Rubid pipeline to find the Joe Rogan podcast. And through that, I saw an episode of Joe Rogan and Dave Smith, which was interesting. And then I watched a debate between Dave Smith and Sam Cedar. And that was sort of a bit of a tipping point. And I remember it was this debate plus a debate Ben Shapiro did with, who's the guy from the Young Turks? Cenk Uger, mm, I think is his name. Know. Yeah. But those two debates really challenged my economic presuppositions. Because I was already kind of like, just because of how crazy the left went, I kind of dropped a lot of the progressive social views and kind of went back to more of a, you know, I wouldn't say conservative, but just more moderate, yeah. you know, neutral position. But I still didn't believe in free market economics. But listening to like Ben Shapiro, and say what you want about him on, you know, there's certainly some libertarians who would call out Ben Shapiro for certain positions that are less than libertarian, and I would agree with that, but made a perfectly libertarian argument against universal health care, which was a thing I largely supported. And I was like a, I was like a Bernie Sanders-style leftist, so I ah, okay. voted for Bernie Sanders in the 2015 primary and, you know, kind of was in that crowd. But Ben Shapiro did a pretty good job debunking universal health care. And then Dave Smith, when he debated Sam Cedar, did a really good job at just pointing out and sort of attacking the left from the left, pointing out how certain things in government that I already, as someone who identified on the left, called out and criticized, the solutions I had to certain problems in society were probably not best handled by the government. You know, it's kind of hmm. like, well, why would you trust the people who've committed, you know, genocide over in the Middle East to take care of us in our old age or to take care of our children? I was like, yeah, fair point. <laughs> and then and then he got into they got into a discussion over social security and monetary policy and the federal reserve and that is when things really st- like that that's kind of when i think i really tripped down the rabbit hole so to speak because i started to realize that the things that i had always cared about as someone who was more economically left income inequality corporate bailouts bank bailouts the rich getting richer the poor getting poorer you know, I mean, and say what you want about, you know, uh, you know, now coming at it from my more anarcho-capitalist position, I recognize income inequality is natural. But there's certainly a point where income inequality can be destabilizing to a society. And I think it's something that libertarians sometimes don't 
maybe give enough lip service to, which is that it's one thing to have natural inequality in a free market setting. But when you have this very large growing gap and the shrinking of the middle class because of you know, what I used to think was capitalism, but then I now rightfully know is cronyism and things that are largely, largely caused by the Federal Reserve and, yeah, right. and everything that goes with the Austrian theory of the business cycle... I don't know. It just after that, it kind of rapidly started to click for me that, you know, again, I got the things that I care about didn't change. I just got better information and a better understanding of economics and realized that using the state to solve problems the state created was a fruitless exercise. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a similar story in a number of ways. That's a really good way to put it. It's like the things you cared about didn't change, but the information you knew how to deal with it. Like you understood that you could, you have different tools and you have known limitations. Like sometimes you don't know what you're limited by. And I think that's where progressives sort of are literally unhinged. They don't know what their limitations are and how far they can take certain policies. It's like, oh, we're just going to make this up. We're just going to print money. We're just going to come up with this random idea because everything's a social construct, right? And so they have this sort of way of, you know, approaching society with this sort of unconstrained way of seeing things. A lot of the people from the left that I remember associating with and who had the mindset I had, they buy into this myth that they almost think we live in a post-scarcity world already. I mean, they mm. think that, like, they look at, like, well, look how rich these billionaires yeah, are. Yeah. Like, they got Bernie Sanders talking about the 1% and... They just see the massive income inequality and they see the level of technological growth, which, you know, of course, came about because of capitalism and free market innovation. But, you know, let's ignore that. You know, so they presuppose that, oh, well, there's already enough for everybody. There's always enough for everybody. And we just give people like the baseline necessities at the very least that they need to survive and be comfortable. And it sounds kind of reasonable on its face if you don't really dive any deeper into it and think about the implications. Like the idea that, oh, we should just give people enough to survive and be comfortable, you know, and yeah, yeah, these things sound reasonable and you can maybe sound a little bit unreasonable if you like try to argue against them because of the way they frame their arguments. But it really is just a matter of like, all right, let's get down to brass tacks. And really when you start understanding more of a Misesian view of economics and understanding, you know, the Austrian view of where value comes from and, you know, human action and how people, you know, only do things if they think that they are going to end up in a better position than they are now. And it's sort of like, okay, well, universal healthcare, you're instantly in a position where there is a ever-growing near infinite amount of demand. But when you universalize it, you're not creating more of it to meet that demand. You know what I mean? Like, just saying everybody gets something doesn't actually create more of it. It's like, well, how do you create more of it? You know? I mean, you can artificially create more currency when you have fiat currency like we have. But you're not creating wealth. Yeah, but you're not creating wealth. And the government can print dollars, but you know what? It can't print doctors. It can't print medicine. It can't print hospitals. Yeah. It can't, you know what I mean? So it turns out that you need people to act to innovate and to figure out how to best use scarce resources to meet yep. the demand of the market. And listen, nothing's perfect. If the argument against free markets are sometimes people will make mistakes or the market won't act fast enough. 
So I think that's the problem leftists have is they go, there's a problem now and it needs solved now. Yeah. Can't wait. Yep. You know what I mean? And Absolutely. I was like, listen, the free market, great for many things. It isn't always like going to instantaneously solve a problem, but that's sometimes a good thing because like, you know what? If you solve a problem in haste and in a, you know, kind of a rushed frenzy, your solution might be pretty terrible. Yeah. So the free market, you know, does maybe move slower than progressives wanted to, but I, I think that more often than not, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's 100% um, with you. In fact, I think one of the first talks I gave at a um, Christians for Liberty conference had to do with like progressives basically have a very high impatience for getting things done. They have no trust in the market. And, you know, we can say that that's for legit reasons in their mind, but yeah, no, you're you're totally right. What I think is revealing or telling about the left's ambitions has more to do with the fact that they're not going to stop when they get the thing they say is going to be like what enables social justice and human flourishing and so forth. So let me give you an example. I've talked to leftists about this and they don't want to budge on it. They want to say universal health care, the Bernie Sanders sort of way of saying, oh, we need these things, free college, free universal health care, these other countries doing it or whatever. I would be willing if we could make a negotiation where you could end the Federal Reserve, you could end foreign occupation, if you want to call it that, basically all of our military bases all overseas, bring all the troops home like Ron Paul style, and we end the Federal Reserve Ron Paul style, I think you could probably make a case for, we would have reduced, I don't know how to say it, but we would have reduced the amount of scarcity such that we could probably afford to do universal health care. But like, they don't want to make that trade-off. They want there to be an entity that is in control of the money supply. They want to have an entity that is capable of actually being overseas. Like the left, I don't know why the left Again, you know, when Trump got elected, I literally had a friend where I worked was like, well, I guess we're going to have to protest war again. And I'm like, wait, you didn't protest the Obama wars? No, we didn't. He was cool. And it was like, (laughs) and I think she actually kind of knew at that point, like, like she kind of knew where I was going with that because she knew where I was. Are you aware uh, of the existence of a country known as Syria? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not anymore. Um, Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, So in any case, I think their greed is insatiable. They can talk about the greediness of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Tim Cook and whomever else all they want. But their greed is that they, and envy, they want what other people have so that they have an agenda and they're only willing to get more of it. I have a leftist friend that I often, I wouldn't say often anymore. We used to often kind of go back and forth a lot. He's really, really smart. He's like a generation above us, right? He could be our parent. He's that that's his generation. And he's always been a leftist. And he said to me, he he would quote, I think it was Rockefeller is cited as quoting when someone said to him, Well, how much money is enough? And his answer was, Well, just a little bit more. And the idea was to illustrate how the greedy just keep wanting more. And sometime within the last year, I think it was right on the holidays, I believe, I said something about how much more does the federal government need to take from the rich? Just a little bit more. Is that how it's going to go? And he was like, oh, good grief. And he just kind of signed off the conversation. And and he's just like, oh, brother. (laughs) How many more years until we win the war on terror? Or how many? Yeah. How much more money do we need to throw at public schools to make them work? Or, you know, just 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 a little little bit bit more. more. Right. Seriously, I don't know how that accusation doesn't sit, right? How many more jabs do you need? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) What's the... uh, A little bit more. Here's my COVID joke. 
What do the unvaccinated and the vaccinated have in common? I don't know what. They're never fully vaccinated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to hard pivot to Romans 13 on this one. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> because we have to deal with the jab. I don't really like calling it that because that, that associates with a certain way of thinking about things. But that was funny. The topic of Romans 13 is really, you know, very live and active in the libertarian Christian community. And Christians will yes. often come at libertarians and be like, well, what about Romans 13? And even non-Christian libertarians will even ask libertarian Christians, well, doesn't the Bible say that you have to just obey the government? And so we have to have an answer to that. And a lot of times, the answer is more on the defensive. It's like, well, well, if you look at the Greek, and if you do this and you do that, you can see that Paul really wasn't saying that. So it was almost like, there's a lot of answers that like seem to hedge. And I heard you give an answer, and I would like to hear you share this with our listeners, that you approach Romans 13 by starting with Romans 12. Well, that's not entirely unique to you, because you know we've made that case in our book and so forth. But the way in which you kind of brought out Romans 12 and Romans 13, I thought was really helpful in simplifying a way to think about Romans 13 that doesn't put us on the defensive, but is like a teaching moment in a really important way. Now, I've set you up to have the most eloquent answer right, possible. Yeah, no and No pressure. <laughs> and uh, But you could go with it however you want, and it might actually end up better than anything anybody would have asked me about. So go with that. <laughs> well, I'll hedge my bets by saying, and with a little bit of shameless promotion, if you go to my podcast, I have two episodes on Romans 13 where I, I kind of do deeper dives into it you know, a couple hours on it, which makes it easier. I'll certainly do my best to give a concise explanation Summary. of the way yeah. I think to... The way that the I think makes the most sense, logically speaking and sort of scripturally speaking, and trying to, trying to get at what Paul was saying. You know what I mean? And if we start in Romans 12, like you alluded to, you know, it's a sort of an echoing and sort of Paul expounding upon what Christ talked about on the Sermon on the Mount in sort of the loving our enemies and how we respond to those who persecute us and, you know, turning the other cheek. You know, like the way Jesus put it was, if, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now I tell you, if someone strikes you, turn to them the other cheek. If someone asks you to walk with them a mile, walk with them a second mile. You know, if someone, you know, asks to borrow from you and doesn't repay you, to not withhold, you know, your generosity. And then Paul, you know, expounds upon this. And, you know, I think that Romans 12 can kind of be read as sort of a, you know, Paul speaking to Christians in terms of like, how do we respond to evil? Because this is, you know, I mean, I mean, it's just relevant, period, but, it's, you know, also sure. relevant to Christians in the context of, you know, what they're living in, because they were very early on living under some, heavy persecution, you know, I mean, Paul himself yeah, was right. once one of the ones who was <laughs> going around and persecuting them. So, you know, how do you respond to that? And Paul echoes what Jesus says. He says, you know, love your enemies, do not overcome evil with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. And insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And then the one part that I think is especially important to consider as we leave Romans 12 and go into Romans 13. Again, I know that 
someone is going to be in the comments going like, oh, the chapter divisions weren't there. It's like, yes, we all know this. Yeah, we know that. That's why we started we, in chapter 12 yeah, in this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's just easier to reference that way. But the, the one line that's, I think, pertinent here is that God says that vengeance belongs to him. And I think that people reading that today and back then have questions to that, right? And like, you know, this happens even to like people who identify as pacifists in the Christian tradition use the Sermon on the Mount and use this as, you know, sort of like passages mm-hmm. to justify their position. And the question that people have for them is the same they'd have for Paul, which is like, hmm, okay, so if people are persecuting us, turn the other cheek. We're supposed to not respond with evil for evil, not seek vengeance ourselves when people persecute us, but trust God. And okay, like that sounds good, but like, what do we do? <laughs> like, do we just roll over and let evil people run amok through our communities? If someone breaks into my house and they're threatening violence against my family or my children, am I supposed to like, you know, I can use words at him and stuff, maybe try to scan it his way, but ultimately, you know, there's no pushback against those who do evil. And so people, I think, you know, rightfully kind of ask that in light of what Jesus says and what Paul is saying in these passages. And so when we go into Romans 13, I think this is sort of, and like Paul does this in his writing so often, right? Like he, he often tries to steal man, his critics. Like he kind of like anticipates what objections will be to certain things he says, and then to, you know, have a response ready to go. We see this in Romans 9. We see this in really throughout Romans and also in, in Galatians when you're talking about like just different ways to handle church disputes. So Paul then in Romans 13 says, the way I read it is sort of, you know, him answering what people are probably thinking and saying, now listen, you should be in submission to those who are in higher heavenly authority, which is, again, I don't want to like, base my entire argument based upon, well, we got to translate word for word and it means this and this. But the word Paul used there, it is important to point out, like he didn't say the state. He didn't use a word that would be literally translated to a king or a ruler. It actually, you know, best translates to higher powers or heavenly authority. He didn't say Caesar. Right, he didn't say Caesar. So he said, be in submission to the heavenly authorities for they are a minister of God for your good. And so he's sort of answering the objectors here by saying they are ministers of God to wield the sword in response to those who commit aggression, who do evil. You know, Paul says like, you know, those who, if you do not want to fear the one who is in the higher power, who is in authority, then do what is good. But those who do evil beware for they do not bear the sword in vain. So what's Paul talking about here? And it might be helpful to maybe start, you know, I usually start by, well, what is Paul not talking about here? Because if we read the way that Romans 13 talks about it, whatever the higher authorities are, well, if you ask that question, what is the higher authorities? It's like, well, Paul is laying out here qualifying prescriptions and definitions for what the higher authorities look like. They are a minister of God for our good, and they are not a terror to those who do good. And I, I think when you think about it, then what Paul is doing is prescribing. He's not describing Caesar. He's not describing. Well, he can't uh, be describing Caesar because that like would be completely that would, exactly. that would sort of like make the Bible untrue, right? Yeah, like, it's just like, hey, <laughs> from from my jail cell, 
where I have been, <laughs> where I have been, you know, all of us are being persecuted yeah, for doing right, good, right. but you know, the state does no bad to those who do good. It's like, no, like that, that's just like, there's no way to reconcile that. Rather what Paul is saying is he's pre, he's saying, listen, to put it this way, what we're supposed to do if people persecute us is not to seek personal vengeance and to take matters into our own hands. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. that means a couple of different things. Like if someone steals from me, if I go and shoot them, that's an escalation. That's not responding in love. That is overcoming evil with evil. Now, maybe in a strict libertarian sense, you could make an argument for reclaiming property and what's the... There could be a context where that was appropriate, right? Right, right. But it might be harder in a Christian sense to say, like, if someone, you know, like, let's say you got overcharged. Like, let's make it not even someone broke into your house. Let's say somebody overcharged you for something or somebody keyed your car or something like that. Neighbor's dog poops in your lawn or something like that. Or maybe it's something like, let's say somebody steals your car, vandalizes your car. Maybe maybe they even cause actual, you know, measurable financial harm to you or your property. And those things happen. What Jesus and Paul are saying to do is to not take a heart of revenge and hatred in response to the evil actions Mm -hmm. that we need to forgive those who persecute us, to love them, and insofar as we can, live at peace with all, and to try to overcome evil with good. But then that doesn't mean that we should live in a society with no rules or no laws. So what then you are supposed to do is instead of taking matters into your own hands and just seeking revenge, we should submit to those who God has ordained. And I think when I say this, it's God is ordaining a part of society, a natural function that that rises up in all human societies and takes different forms. But those who act as arbiters to settle property disputes and to protect the innocent from those who are initiating aggression against them, that is a godly duty. That is a godly service that some people are called to do. You know, and we all have different callings and giftings. Not everyone is called to necessarily step into such a role. So those who are acting in authority, now they have a clear prescription in Romans 13, as well as I think other parts of the Bible, into what they are to do and what they are not to do. They are not to be a terror to those who do good. They are to be acting as a minister of God. And I think, you know, acting out of the same sort of heart that, you know, when Jesus was washing his feet and showing what true authority is, which was to be a servant, people who are acting in these roles should view themselves in the same way as they're not here to rule over society and to impose anything on them. Rather, they are there to protect the innocent and to, if there is a violation of property rights or an act of aggression, to act in the defense of those who have been aggressed against and to act as peacemakers, as mediators, and to bring justice Romans 12 is basically saying, do not seek revenge. And Romans 13 is saying, but do seek justice. And I think that's the dichotomy that makes Romans 13, again, this is, in my opinion, sensical and makes a consistent Mm -hmm. reading where Paul is not in conflict with himself and not making statements that are contradictory. And to me, solves a problem, which is, I think other answers that are given interpretations that are given about Romans 13 
just don't work because they always end up being descriptive instead of prescriptive. And when you try to read Romans 13 in a descriptive mode, I just don't think that there's any way to reconcile that states or those in power who are committing violence against people, who are extorting them, who are initiating coercion against them on a daily basis, who claim authority not through righteous Christ-like service, but through fiat and through force, that we can describe that in the terms that Paul uses in Romans 13. Mm. Mm -hmm. To describe Caesar or to describe the IRS or to describe really any historical or modern-day state as these are ministers of God. (laughs) And they are there to be a terror to those who do evil. But if you do good, you have nothing to fear. Again, uh, like we talked about when you were on my show just before we're recording this now, I never want to bring my libertarian presuppositions to bear onto the text. And I'm very careful to try to do that here too. I'm not trying to go into Romans 13 and wiggle around things and shift them around to make it say what I want to say. I just think that, A, I think there's clearly interpretations of Romans 13 and different versions of the Bible where they just, they literally do change the words to say things that aren't the actual Greek. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with what the actual Greek words Paul used were rather than what those interpretations say. And two, again, I think that actually what I'm presenting and those who have a view like mine are presenting is walking through the text line by line, reading it in context and trying to make it make logical sense and biblical sense. Because again, if you're supposed to submit to those in authority, we can also point to countless examples where Jews and Christians and those serving God have absolutely not done so. So to reconcile all of this, I think that looking at it in that mood, looking at Romans 12 as a call to reject seeking personal revenge and going after those who persecute you out of hatred, we are to reject that as Christians because that is not Christ-like. And if we are to mimic Christ, we cannot act out of hate, even if it is in the face of evil. We have to bear our cross and act as Jesus did. But that does not mean that we should leave those who are being aggressed against out on the cold and defenseless. So I, I, my interpretation would certainly not be compatible with someone who has a more pacifistic interpretation of Romans mm-hmm. 12 and Christianity as a whole. Um, I'm not a pacifist. I think that we shouldn't seek revenge, but we should seek justice. And that means that we should come to the defense of those who are being persecuted. And Mm -hmm. who persecutes people more than the state? Like if we're talking about like, it's a terror to those who do evil, it's like, well, there's a high level of evildoers in the state. So So who's the terror that comes against them, right? Right. (laughs) So I hope that makes sense. If you have any clarifying questions, uh, I can try to answer those as well. I think that's a pretty decent summary. And I know you said you went over it in the episodes on your podcast. And so obviously we want listeners to go listen to that to sort of like get the longer version of this. What I think is useful about that is that I think even if I'm going to sort of posit that maybe your view isn't as deep as say someone else who's like, like, no, I have the real Roman 13 answer. And and it still aligns with what you're saying here with its anti-state and all that. What your response and your summary of all this does, which I think is faithful to the text and to the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount, spirit of Romans 12, is that you get people to see that it can't be descriptive, 
right? That yeah. you look at this and say, whoa, hold on here. Well, if I'm going to be in favor of Romans 13, and I wanted to do this, 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 and this, oh, well, it's not doing that. Federal government's not doing that. Federal government's not doing that. State government's not doing that. And you start all of a sudden, now Romans 13 isn't this sort of like thing we have to sort of justify you know, with a different interpretation. It's more like this is the tool we use to tell people that the state isn't doing its job if it has that job in the first place. Like, let's leave that right. question aside for just the moment. Like, you can come to a minarchist conclusion yes, and say, but the state isn't doing its job. And that job is pretty minimal if you want to see yeah. it that way in Romans 13. And so I know that there are people on the left who are going to say, well, the administration of justice is really important. And justice, if we read the prophets, includes this stuff like social justice and all that. I think that reads it too far. I know you're laughing. But it reads it too far into it. But at the very least, you're like, man, you can't preach this in 1940s Germany, right? No. I don't know how a German pastor was preaching in Romans 12 and 13 in the night, late 1930s, 1940s. Go to Australia right now and preach this. <laughs> well, right. So like, what do you do? What do you do when there are those kinds of things happening in your environment and you realize that this can't be interpreted in, in the way that a lot of people interpret it, right? It's like, oh, well, we got to rethink this because that can't right. be true. Yeah, and you don't even you don't have to take it to an anarchist position. Like you said, you can just take it to a minarchist position and be like, okay, there should be people who are acting in a role of civil governance. And that might even take the form of some sort of thing we could call a state. But mm -hmm. God would only prescribe over those people doing what he, you know, what Paul is out in Romans 13. And I think another way to look at it is, I kind of started out by saying, well, we need to read Romans 13 and have Romans 12 bear on that. But we also, I think it's fair to say that a more traditional, or I don't know if I want to use that word, a more, I guess, like modern, maybe traditional statist interpretation of Romans 13, I think what it does is it actually puts Romans 13 in conflict with Romans 12. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, yeah. if we're called to not take vengeance, and we're called to not overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. And if we're called to insofar as it depends on us to live at peace among all, it's like, well... You can't be a statist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the state's also in conflict with all of that. Like, you know, so the state's in conflict. The modern state is in... Con the modern state is in conflict with the prescriptions laid out for those acting in civil governance as laid out in Romans 13. But the modern state is also in conflict with the call for Christians that's given in Romans 12. You know what yeah. I mean? Like if you, again, like we talked about this a little bit on my podcast, but like if you love your neighbor, <laughs> trying to make any, anytime you say I love my neighbor, but I need to initiate coercion against them, like that is a... And um, I need your money to help it, to help me. Right. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. And I think yeah. fundamentally, like trying to read Romans 12 and Romans 13, trying to take them both, reading them one after the other, and trying to read them in a consistent way, doing, you know, responsible exegesis, and then having a context of the entire narrative of the Bible up until this point, and an historical context, I don't think it really leaves you with a whole lot of options. Hmm. I mean, to me, the only other plausible option is actually maybe the pacifistic option, except then this is what happens is a lot of the Christian pacifists actually, what's funny is that they'll use Romans 12 to justify their position. 
But then Romans 13, some of them will go, oh, well, this is why we don't like Paul. And then they start throwing out parts of scripture they don't (laughs) like. (laughs) Some of them make the argument to steal man their position that, oh, well, yes, the state is evil and you're just supposed to submit to it just like you are in Romans, like it says in Romans 12, submit to, I mean, to, um, you know, turn the other cheek to those who persecute you. And Romans 13 is just basically saying, well, just turn the other cheek to the state as well. It's like, okay. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's pretty weak. But yeah, I think that's pretty weak because specifically it's a minister of God for your good. That Mm. gets really hard to reconcile with that view. And then it's not a terror to those who do good. And it's like, well, I guess you could say it's not a salvific or eternal terror. Like, I mean, yes, in a sense, our hope is always in Christ, no matter what happens to us here on this earth. But that's kind of, to me, mental gymnastics to get around. Yeah, once you get in those games, it's... Well, and that's kind of what we try to avoid as best as possible. I mean, you have to do some sort of explanation and sometimes words are hard and sometimes you have to do a little bit of digging. But once you start doing the mental gymnastics, then it becomes a little unbelievable. Like, as in like, it's yeah. just not worth believing. Disbelievable might be the better word there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate your perspective on it. I think it holds water. I know that there are other libertarian Christians who might disagree with that sort of interpretation, but you can't, again, you can't get away from the usefulness of it in helping people realize that this is not an anti-libertarian text. So at least on those grounds, I think it's really helpful. And, and I appreciate you coming on to sort of espouse this. So tell everybody about your podcast, just in brief, like what's your general, like, well, what's repeat the name for us. And then what's the general purpose that you set out to accomplish? Yeah. So it's a uh, Daniel three biblical anarchy, which you can find on YouTube or any podcatcher or it's Daniel com. And I'm at biblical anarchy on Twitter. So that should be enough for people to find me and find the podcast if you want to check it out. And I mean, it's a bit of a, mixed bag. I have episodes where kind of like the Romans 13 one and I have one on render unto Caesar. I've done one on, you know, economic lessons in the Bible. So there's a mix of episodes that are like that and that are a bit more, I guess, like exposition based and diving deep into the Bible and kind of, you know, exploring those topics. And then I also do just a fair bit of more casual, um, you know, conversational episodes where I have just interesting guests on to maybe talk about a particular subject, maybe to have, you know, I've had a couple statists on or people who aren't libertarians on to have a friendly back and forth dialogue with them. I've had like atheists on my show who are libertarians to discuss (gasps) maybe the, I don't know, (laughs) to discuss the different ways we approach the same political philosophy and to maybe espouse, you know, maybe a, a ceasefire of sorts um, <laughs> in that particular culture war. I just had you on, which people can go check that out. And yeah, I just, I want to dive deep into the Bible to explore the truth of God's word and the bottomless well of wisdom and knowledge for how to live a more godly, Christ-like life and to follow to follow out the commands that, that God has given us more consistently and to have more conversations with people, you know, libertarian or not, to continue learning and to, you know, keep pushing the Overton window in the directions that I think are beneficial. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.